you or someone you love needs help for an addiction, where do you turn? Foundations Recovery Network offers individualized treatment for the whole person. Our goal goes beyond short-term sobriety. We address substance abuse and co-occurring mental health issues together, providing a firm foundation for long-term recovery. The first step is often the hardest, but we're here with a free assessment, insurance information, and treatment options. Our confidential helpline is available 24-7, so call 877-714-1318 and discover the Foundation's Recovery Network difference today. Yo, what up? Thanks for tuning in today, and thank you for supporting the show. Big shout out to the homie Shane for having faith in me to start this new show. It's a great honor, and I'm super pumped to begin this new adventure. Mad love to the listeners out there that kept asking Sober Guy for more Seth. This is Seth Manter, and you are listening to the very first Tuesday episode of Sober Guy Radio. As a very regular listener and guest of that sober guy, I've always envisioned myself as a host. Because K-Fuck Radio played so loud in my head, I never took that plunge. And you, the listeners, played a huge part in turning down the volume, which in turn has allowed me to step out of my comfort zone. I'm super stoked to get this shit underway. First and foremost, I'd like to say that by no means am I an addiction specialist, recovery counselor, or mental health professional. Just a regular dude that struggled with addictions to substances for many years. And it's my intention to use this platform to share my story and the story of others in a loving and compassionate manner to spread the word of self-recovery. I hope to share how I obtain sobriety, how I maintain a meaningful sober life. And I truly believe that if I share one thing that has the opportunity of helping just one person out there, with their struggles that I have succeeded. So on today's show, super pumped, I have Brandon Demchak. Brandon is a writer, director, and veteran of the Iraq War. Brandon enlisted in the Army when he turned 21 and served as an infantry paratrooper in the renowned 82nd Airborne. In 2010, Brandon deployed in support of Operation Unified Response, providing humanitarian and security services to the people of Haiti following the devastating earthquake. In 2011, Brandon deployed to Iraq as an infantryman, right? Infantryman? Yeah. For Operation Iraqi Freedom and Operation New Dawn. Brandon was honorably discharged in 2015 from the military and was ready to take on the world. Unfortunately, the seeds of post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, had other plans for Brandon. What Brandon and his fellow paratroopers had experienced overseas was not an easy burden to bear. Like many of us, Brandon turned to alcohol to quiet what can only be described as a noise inside his head. Not knowing where else to turn, Brandon made the choice to seek treatment in 2017. Brandon now dedicates his life to helping other veterans in the same position. He's currently enrolled in the screenwriting program at Loyola Marymount University, and through his latest project, Firecracker, Brandon hopes to give voice to the countless thousands of service men and women who suffer from PTSD and other war-related injuries, while also honoring those who never made it home. But before we dig in, 
be sure to check us out at www.thatsoberguy.com for past episodes. There's also tons of resources there. You can contact us at sobriety at thatsoberguy.com. You can hit me up personally at Seth, that's S-E-T-H, at thatsoberguy.com. If you have any questions about whether you or a loved one may need help, you can contact Foundations Recovery Network at 877-714-1318. Foundations has nationwide residential and outpatient treatment facilities, and they can provide a confidential assessment to review the best treatment options for you or your loved one. So what's up, Brandon? Uh, I think we're just going to go ahead and dive right in, kind of kind of talk us up to uh, what led you to making that decision to, to seek in treatment and what uh, attracted you or where did you realize that you had a, a drinking problem? So we're just going to dive right into your story and I'll let you kind of take it away from here, dude. Well, thanks, man. Uh, first off, I appreciate you having me on, dude. It's, I mean, I love what you guys are doing over there and um, I'm uh, stoked to be on here. But um, yeah, I... Uh, like you said in my bio, man, I, when I got out, uh, I thought I'd be fine. You know, um, I thought everything was okay. Of course the drinking and stuff was pretty big in the military. Um, you know, we used to run in formation and if it didn't smell like a brewery, we didn't do something right the night before, you know what I'm saying? And, uh, (laughs) and so, uh, that unfortunately, like, I mean, I, I had a past with uh, addiction and alcoholism, drugs, and all that stuff before the military. In fact, one of the biggest reasons I joined the military was because uh, I didn't really know what to do. In fact, uh, uh, I, it was after maybe uh, my third treatment center, I was like, well, I don't think I'm going to go back to meetings because those didn't work. So, uh what else, what else could give me some structure and a bed to sleep in? And so that's why I joined the military. Um, it had nothing to do with like patriotism or anything like that. Um, I just knew that it'd be a good job to have. And I needed, I knew I'd be stuck somewhere for a while. And I knew it was an honorable job. I knew it would help me become a man. And I was right in the fact that it helped me stop doing drugs. But like I said, uh, drinking's a big part of uh, the military. You know, we work hard and play even harder. And uh, that stuff just caught up with me, man. All right, Brandon. So you kind of, you used milita- the military, joining the military to get away from, from the shit that you were in to kind of, um, you know, the change of, ge- change, your, change your location, change of geographical location, right? Right. Um, so, so what was your expectation when you first joined the military? Um, my expectation when I joined the military, I knew uh, what I was getting into. I knew that. It would, I'd be doing some stuff that some people uh, have never done and will never do. Um, I knew it was an honorable job and I knew it was a good uh, way out of what I was doing. I thought, honestly, I thought it would fix me. And, um, you know, I, I got into it. I, I picked a job that, uh, you know, as a kid, I'd play in the background, backyard, uh, shooting fake guns at each other with your friends and stuff. And, you know, and so I was like, well, that's what I wanted to do. The stuff I saw in the movies, basically, you know. Yeah, it was um, definitely, definitely glamorized as a kid. I remember doing that shit, too. Sure. Yeah. 
so I, I wanted to do something I could have some stories to tell, you know, and uh, boy, did I get it, you know. Um, just, yeah, like I said, I mean, going to basic training and stuff like that, people yelling in your face, all that stuff. I knew all that was coming. I was not, um, I was not, I, I was very aware of what uh, was supposed to, what, what was coming, you know. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So you got out of basic, did you go? Um, so I joined, I was in the Coast Guard. That's where, where I served, okay, cool. um, was in the Coast Guard. And we, you know, we get our, I think they call it the MOS in the army, um, yeah. whatever your job was. So, so where'd you, what was your job? Uh, I was 11 Bravo or airborne 11 Bravo. So I was, uh, I guess it's 11 Bravo, Papa, um, which is, uh, infantry. And, uh, I, so after after basic training, I attempted to go to Ranger Battalion, um, and they send you through this thing called RIP, uh, or at the time it was called RIP, it's called RAS now, but it's a Ranger Indoctrination Program. And uh, I went there for a while, um, didn't make it in, and all the uh, all the people who basically all the people who don't make it into Ranger Battalion or Special Forces to the 82nd airborne so after uh, a few weeks of being down there and bedding for bending at a rip they i got orders to uh north carolina to go to the 82nd and talk about <laughs> talk about uh uh you know god laughing in your face i mean what the uh i i i joined the military to get away from meetings and stuff like that because i thought those didn't work and the nickname of the 82nd Airborne is the All-American. So when I get to the 82nd Airborne, they slap a patch on my arm and they're the All-Americans. So the patch has an Airborne tab over the top and underneath it says AA. Oh yeah. <laughs> so, so I had to stare at the solution on my arm for seven years, basically. And when I deployed, they give you another one to put on your other arm. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean like, I remember looking at it when I, when I got the patch, I was like, man. So you, so you, you kind of alluded to the fact too, man, when you joined the military, you knew what you were getting into. You knew you yeah. were going to see some fucked up shit. You knew you were going to do some fucked up shit. Um, let's kind of get into the effect of the real effects of what that fucked up shit that you had to do, that you were ordered to do. Um, the shit that you had to do to save you and your, your fellow troops lives, your brother's lives. Um, and some of the shit that you saw in Haiti, man, like what, what kind of effect did, did that have on you? And when did you realize that the effects of seeing that, doing that kind of shit was like, was serious? Yeah, I knew um, what Haiti was my first deployment and that really uh, kind of put the fog over my eyes, I guess you could say as to what fucked up shit looks like, you know what I mean? So by the time I got to Iraq, like anything that, I saw or anything that happened just was like, I was numb to it. I didn't even care because uh, of Haiti. Haiti was uh, by far the um, most uh, disturbing. We're on, at the time we were on the, uh, uh, it's called GRF, the Global Response Force and the 82nd, uh, between eight, the 82nd, 10th Mountain and uh, I think third idea i don't remember another another army division uh we rotate through uh what's called the global response force so basically if anything goes down 
you know, North Korea decides to get a little frisky one day or something, uh, they call us and we, we usually, we have to be ready to go in uh, 18 hours. Um, and so we were on the Global Response Force at the time. And so I remember this was 2010, I was sitting with my buddy, we we're in the movie theater watching Avatar. And we both got a phone call at the exact same time saying, get, get your ass to base, we'll leave. And we're, we thought it was a drill because we, I mean, like every weekend they'd call us to test us. And, you know, we're like, oh, this is just a drill, blah, blah, blah. And then we're driving in. They're like, no, this is real. This is real. We think we're going to Afghanistan. We think we're, we thought something, you know, I mean, I mean, we, we lived through 9-11. So we thought maybe something really bad. And we had no idea really what was going on. And uh, that's when we found out it was uh, Haiti and it was an earthquake and we're, and we're infantrymen. So we're like, that's not a war. What are we doing there? You know? Yeah, for sure. And, uh, but turns out in 94, Haiti almost lost their entire government because of, uh, you know, some people trying to overthrow the government. And since the earthquake happened, they thought it was really uh, susceptible to that happening again. So they sent us down there to, for humanitarian aid but also to make sure nothing crazy would happen there. So anyway, we got there. Um, I believe uh, we were there two days after the earthquake. We sat, uh, we were ready to go right away, but they sent another battalion first and then another. And we were like the third battalion to go. So we got there about, to, about 48 hours after the earthquake happened. And, uh, you know, in Haiti, over 200,000 people died in that earthquake and you can't clean up 200,000 bodies in 48 hours, you know? I, I remember seeing just like the total devastation, you know, from afar, some of yeah. the shit that they were putting on TV, dude. And I, I remember there was times that I had to fucking turn the TV off because I couldn't, yeah. I couldn't take it, dude. Like I could only imagine stepping off of that plane being like, holy fuck. Dude, it was, it was eye-opening. I mean, they put us on the airfield for like two days. Uh, we were just sitting out there. I mean, we were, they, they put us like in this grassy field. There's tarantulas everywhere. We were just laying in little hooches, uh, you know, little made tents uh, that we had to make ourselves to sleep under and tarantulas crawling all over the place. And we were just sitting there for two days and wondering like, when are we going to go in? When do we go in? And we could see like often like off on, uh, in the distance, because uh, we were on the airfield, you could see off in the distance the city of Port-au-Prince was just like level, and we're like, that's not going to be good when we get in there. And I remember the first night driving through Haiti, we find we got the order to go occupy this uh, hospital, and I remember the first night driving through. You know, we're on the big uh, LMTV. Um, it's like a basically like a flatbed, eighteen-wheeler type thing and um or two ton and uh we're all sitting in the back and we're driving through at night man there's just fire little little fires everywhere rubble everywhere there's people in the middle of the streets uh you know crying over dead bodies like and we and it's been like four days after the earthquake at this point and there's still just bodies in the streets um the smell is something i'll never ever get out of my head um you know, because it's hot there too. It's really, it gets really hot. We got there in January and it was, it was already in the 80s. And um, yeah, that was, that was eye-opening. I never seen a third world country, let alone one that just 
had a 1.0 earthquake, you know. And the buildings there are made out of, um, it's kind of sad. It's I mean, we would pick up the bricks. I remember picking up the bricks and you could just drop them just from your waist and they would just crumble into little pieces on the ground. They were made of like sand, basically. So their, their infrastructure was just shot. And, um, you know, they were, they needed our help. So anyway, we got to the hospital and this place we stayed in was right across an alleyway. When I say hospital, it's not like an American hospital where you think like, you know, seven stories, you know, like nice rooms and stuff and emergency room. It's like, it was like a compound, like a walled off, like imagine walling off like half of a neighborhood, like each little building was a different wing of the hospital. So that's kind of what it was like. And we, we went and occupied this building. My entire company was in this one little building. So like 140 dudes something like that. I don't even know. That might, that number might be too high, but a lot of dudes in, uh, in this building and right across the alleyway was, uh, come to find out was a, um, a nursery for a, a, a school, a school where they taught, uh, women how to take care of kids. So like little babies and stuff like that. And that building was just leveled. And so we were staying over there and they hadn't started clearing out that level building yet. So inside that building was just, uh, uh, you know, a ton of dead Haitian women and children basically. And, uh, like I said, the smell was awful. Just seeing that, just see, I mean, the, a 21 year old kid, you know, or a 18 year old kid, uh, who anybody really just seeing that stuff for the first time you know I'm from California I'm not used to that you know level of uh I don't even know what the word is for it just seeing seeing it for the first time was definitely eye-opening and I was there for five months you know yeah so so you bring up like a you bring up an important uh, important topic there man like how did you how did you deal and cope with that or did you even have the opportunity to deal and cope with it while you were there, or was it just fucking go, 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 go for five months? Um, yeah, we, I mean, it, it was pretty much go, go, go. We were, you know, we did a bunch of missions where we were, uh, we would uh, guard places as they pulled rubble out. We would uh, hand out rice. We would do all, I mean, we were working every day. Uh, at one point, I remember working like every, once every three days, we were like, but that was like three or four months in, we finally got on like a rotation. Uh, cause things started to get better, but yeah, dealing with it was, wasn't, I, I tried to think about it now, like at the time we, we didn't really know how to deal with it. I mean, there, there was a lot of guys in my unit who had already been to Iraq, already been to Afghanistan, stuff like that. So they had, they had seen some stuff before, you know, and, uh, for, for me, it was just like, we dealt with it by just each other we had not i mean it's not like i had alcohol or drugs in haiti you know and uh we would talk about it we started to laugh about it we started i mean i i remember sitting there going like we're changing we're changing because i never would have laughed about seeing dead people or seeing uh suffering like that you know what i mean and now we're kind of like not in like a sadistic way but just kind of like it was our only way to cope you know was to be like oh did you see that guy over there holy shit that was crazy right you know like Stuff like that. And so when we got back from Haiti, I mean, the drinking really took off 
for me and for a lot of my friends really. And, uh, but like I said, it was part of the culture. Yeah. And that's just kind of what you guys drink. did. You got together yeah. and you got fucking hammered together. Right. Yeah. Like, and you yeah. know, I remember too, you know, so I was, I was a part of a lot of the uh, recovery ef- efforts after nine 11. Um, okay. I was stationed, I was stationed in New York, dude. And the fucking planes flew right over our boat. So I saw both the motherfuckers hit. Right. Yeah. And then we were, um, we were, uh, dispatched over to the buildings like right away saw a bunch of death and dis- destruction, dude. And it was fucking horrible. And I remember, um, you know, probably after the third or fourth night, dude, just laying in my rack, like feeling no emotions over it, like seeing some shit that, you know, a boy from California, like you had previously referred to, like I've never seen any fucking thing like that. And I couldn't, I couldn't share or I, I couldn't express my emotions over that dude. And it kind of sounds like, you know, that's kind of what you guys were going through. And then in your off time, you were able to kind of get together and let loose and just get fucking hammered. Yeah. I mean, we, we, uh, you know, this, uh, one thing in Haiti happened where we were guarding a place and, uh, a dude on a motorcycle got killed, like right in front of our eyes. Um, and, uh, you know, pure accident, nothing, you know, nothing we did nothing you know it just was a pure accident on a motorcycle got killed you know and now we're back home months later and we have a shot dedicated to him that we made you know and every time we'd all go to the bar we'd be like do the do the shot do the shot we called it the cordon clothesline like it was kind of fucked up thinking about it now but like that was our way of 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 dealing with it you know and you know like yeah like you said dude like we I, we'd never seen shit like that before. So like, how do you deal with it? You know, they don't, the army doesn't teach you how to deal with feelings, you know? No, definitely not. It's, it's definitely uh, a fucking man up, sack up and shut the fuck up pretty much. That's, that's, that's kind of, um, you know, I was, I didn't, I didn't have the opportunity to be deployed overseas and kind of see, see some of that stuff that was going on. But, you know, especially with our, our nine 11 efforts, man, like, that's what it was, dude. It's like, this is your fucking job. If you can't handle yeah. it, um, you're going to have to find a way to fucking handle it. There wasn't like, they didn't, there wasn't counselors to go talk to or anything like that. And and for me, um, you know, I most definitely turned to the bottle and the, all the dudes that I hung out with, like, that's how we fucking coped. Yeah. And, totally. then, and, and then too, man, I also feel like if, if um, you know, you, you, you felt like you wanted to start t- talking about it and you did start talking about it, you'd kind of be looked at like, you know, kind of, kind of like a pussy, like fucking sack up, dude. Exactly. Yeah. Like, I mean, we, we would, uh, you know, as, as, uh, friends or whatever, we would talk about it with each other, but never, never in like a therapeutic type of way, you know, like I said, we, there was mostly jokes and stuff like that, but like to go talk to somebody, you know, like asking for time off of work to go to an appointment to talk to a therapist or something like that, you know, like at the time it was like, oh, bro, let me catch you going to a therapist, you know, pussy, wuss, like, you know, stuff like that. Like, oh, you can't handle it. What are you going to cry? You know what I mean? Like it's that kind of culture, you know, I loved it at the time, you know, I thought it was great, you know, but now looking back, it's, and, and, that's that's part of the problem is when guys get out they keep that mentality they don't realize that it's it's not it's actually more of a manly move to go talk about it you know because the the amount of wreckage in your life you can make just holding on to that stuff it could be devastating 
Yeah. So, so getting into that, man. So you, after, after Haiti, you went over to Iraq and obviously, you know, you could probably tell a hundred thousand war stories of some of the shit that you saw in Iraq. So, so you got back from Iraq. How long, how long were you back in the States before you were discharged or were you in the States when you got discharged? Yeah, I was. So I was in Iraq, uh, pretty much all of 2011. I got, we got, I got out, uh, of, I got home from Iraq December, 2011. And I got, I got out of the military February, 2015. So I was back for that. We'll call that about three years. I, I mean, we wanted to deploy. I mean, we're infantry, you know what I mean? You can't do your job. Stateside. You have to deploy to do, to do your job at all. You know? Yeah. I, we, we, we tried, we thought we were going to get deployed a few times and stuff like that, but it just never happened. We went on that GRF rotation a few times, like I told you about earlier. Um, and it just never ended up happening. But yeah, after Iraq is about three years before I got out. So as you were, as you were getting close to your, your end of service date, man, what, what were the thoughts in your head? Like, man, fuck this shit. I'm going to get out. I'm going to, uh, take life on i'm gonna what what were those thoughts oh, looking like oh i could not wait to get out man i mean i you know the grass is always greener like like people say but dude i was like i am so over this shit we weren't deploying you know there there's a couple times it got close we thought we might deploy and then no and i was like fuck man like i'm getting the hell out of here i'm gonna go do something that i want to do I'm going to go do something that means something to me, you know? And so finally, by the time I got out, dude, it was like, oh, if I had to wait another day, it would have been the longest fucking day of my life, you know? Like, I could not get out soon enough. And it was a total change from when I joined, when I first joined, you know? I was like, all right, let's do this. And now at the end, I was just done, man. I was tired, really. And you're, the in those three years from Iraq to when I got out, you know, the drinking just took, just, I, it, I took it to a whole new level. I mean, a lot of my friends were getting out, either getting out or, or going uh, somewhere else, you know, uh, getting new duty stations, getting new orders. A lot of my friends became recruiters, drill sergeants, you know, just going up in the ladder, basically the army. So I was just sitting there at Fort Bragg in North Carolina and the 82nd Airborne going like, damn, man, all my homies are gone. And, uh, you know, and I, what do I do? So during the weekends, instead of going out and partying with all my friends, I was sitting in my barracks room, uh, you know, watching movies and blacking out by myself, you know? And I thought, I thought it was fine because, you know, it's cool, whatever. That's just what I do. It's the weekend. I deserve this, you know? And so by the time, so three years of that, you know, uh, uh, long weekends of like four, four day weekends in the military. Oh my, I just drink, uh, from, sun up to sundown and uh so three years of that really took a toll on me man I was starting to get out of shape um I was starting to um I was starting to shake in the mornings and stuff you know I, I used to I remember I used to get up and run to work um it's like a my 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 battalion was like a mile away from where I lived I used to run to work to try and sweat off the booze a little bit from the night before so I didn't so I didn't stink as much as I as I think I would have, if I would have watched stupid, I did, that probably didn't work at all, you know, but <laughs> I, I remember I used to get to work and people would be like, Oh man, someone smells like booze. And I'd be like, Oh yeah, that's weird. Someone does smell like booze. And I just knew for a fact it was me. 
and so so at that point though it was like normal right like it wasn't a big deal like it was no. kind of you guys kind of laughed at it right yeah yeah we laughed at it i mean i got a paycheck every two weeks i had a place to live I, like the, it wasn't a problem at, at, in my eyes at the time anyway and uh you know so when i got out i just kept that pattern going and it just got worse and worse when was it that you kind of had that that moment like i can't fucking do this shit anymore i can't fucking take it what let's let's talk about that a little bit sure so yeah i was i was going to school i'd gotten out and uh moved back to california um and moved down to la and uh i was going to school you know that uh wonderful wonderful gi bill was helping me out a lot uh, plus some disability from uh, some injuries I had in the military. You know, life was good. I, I mean, it, well, no, okay, I take that back. It was terrible, but I, as as far as on the outside, it, it it was fine. You know, I was getting a paycheck at an apartment. I had uh, a car. I had I had everything I needed, but I also had a lot of time. And, and so, I would drink just nonstop. If I didn't have to go to class, I would just drink sun up to sundown and um and so finally after about a year and a half of being uh, out of the military i you know the idea started to, i i knew it was becoming a problem you know i was uh puking every single morning and it wasn't like a cute puke like a sorority girl or something it was like like a demon screaming into the toilet you know just trying oh, yeah. to get just trying to get out whatever was in my body from the night before and uh and i knew it was taking a toll on my body i was gaining a ton of weight um just bloated i looked terrible big sunken in eyes i had like two black eyes basically and uh and and it just but but it wasn't really the physical stuff that that um that started to bother me because i could drink away the physical pain that, that's easy you know the alcohol still started to work for that but the alcohol stopped working for the emotional pain hmm. you know like i said like, kind of like you said in your introduction like just kind of quiet quieting down the noise in my head you know fourth of july i sleep I, I i drink as much as i can try and black out through the whole thing you know stuff like that i would i i i, I reached a point where i remember uh sitting in my bathroom on that cold tile floor one more time just thinking like i can't do this i was i think i was 29 at the time i was 29 years old and i remember going i'm gonna be in my 30s now and still doing this and i'm like that's fucked up and then i thought oh if i do this in my 30s i'll definitely be doing it in my 40s if i make it to my 40s because uh, I knew the alcohol was, I was, I was drinking enough to kill me. And, um, and so I had kind of that moment of clarity, you know, that where I was like, okay, I, I, I think, you know, all that AA stuff, all that, all that recovery stuff I've heard in the past, it seemed, it seemed like I, I, I should start thinking about it again, you know? And then, and then I remember one day, like I said, on that tile floor, one more time, just going like, okay, okay, I'm going to do it. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to go back. I'm going to go back and, 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 and do this again. And I think six months later I got so, you know, 
because because uh, it, it turned into that thing. I'll, I'll do it tomorrow. I'll do it tomorrow. I'll do it tomorrow. And just six months of that was just it. It was just hell on my on, on my mind, my body. I you know I thought I was going crazy. Yeah, and, for sure. I think the we we get really good at averting uh, you know the things that. Um, are, are good for us. And, and, you know, I, I still struggle with this on a daily basis, right? Like I keep Mm -hmm. telling myself, yeah, man, I'm going to get back into the gym. And I think it's just, it's, it's funny the way that our mind works that like we advert and and we push off the stuff um, that's going to help us succeed or help us to be, you know, feel better to be better people. And it's, it's so crazy the way that the addiction works for sure. So during this time, man, did you, did you have, I'm sorry, during, during this time, did you have any of the, was there any thoughts in your head? Um, like, damn, man, I I don't know if, if this is just me, the addict, the way that I'm uh, acting and thinking, or did you, I'm sure that as you were getting out of the military, they probably talked to you a little bit about PTSD, PTSD. Did, did those thoughts come into your head that, man, these are just the effects of PTSD and the only way that I could deal with them right now is by drowning them. Yeah, I think I I I used to, I, I would blame it on the PTSD a lot because I got diagnosed with PTSD in 2014 when I was getting out of the military. So I knew I knew I had it. I, yeah, I would use that excuse going like, oh well, it's just PTSD. This is this is what I use. You know, alcohol wasn't my problem. It's, it was my solution. That was my drug. You know, that's what I use. Some people use Zoloft. I use you know, Seagram seven. <laughs> and so at, it, it got to the point where kind of like, like I said, that last six months before I got sober, I knew, I knew it was alcoholism because I, all the stuff I'd been through before the military, like I knew I, I had this kind of allergy. I knew that, I knew that once I picked up, I couldn't stop. I knew, I knew that I had no control over what happened after I took a drink. Um, but that, the, the, the thing that I, 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 I've learned now in sobriety, it wasn't about ap- what happened after I took a drink. It was what happened before I took a drink, you know, yeah. that insanity, that, that kind of going like, why, why would you take a drink when you know, you, I knew what would happen if I took a drink. I knew I would end up feeling worse. I knew I'd probably do something stupid or something. You know what I mean? Like I probably, or I, or not do something stupid or I just lock myself in my bedroom for six days at a time, you know, like, I knew that's that was going to happen, but I kept picking up a drink. That to me is alcoholism. That's what, that's why I finally started to go like, I need to get back into recovery. Um, because it was my only option. I could go to all the PTSD clinics. I could go to all the, the stuff the VA has to offer, which I do, uh, still do, but that, you know, that's just to kind of, you know, keep, keep, uh, keep that muscle going. But like, as I, I knew the only way to quit drinking was to go back to and, and, and get back into recovery. So finally you, you, you realized like, fuck it, dude, I can't take it no more. The, the pushing it off for six months had kind of worn on you. So what yeah. was it finally, what finally happened that you, uh, you took that plunge? So, uh, the day before I got sober, I remember I used to, now, I'll tell it in detail too, because it's kind of weird. But uh, the day before I got sober, I, I used to I used to order um, booze to my house because I just couldn't leave. You know, I was very isolated, 
And uh, so I ordered uh, booze and I, I always got Seagram 7 whiskey. And, uh, and the guy accidentally brought me Seagram's gin. Oh, shit. Yeah. And I was, you know, I You're was like, I what had, the fuck is this? Yeah. So I, and I was shaking like a leaf. I couldn't tell him to go back, you know? So I was like, well, all right, I'll drink it, you know? So I took it from him and, uh, and, you know, and that was just like, that, that was really like a, just like, they talk about pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization for some reason, getting the wrong booze and drinking it anyway was just like, I mean, it was, it was a, a accumulation of things, but like, this was the straw that broke the camel's back. Basically I was drinking gin and I hate gin. I don't even like it. And I was drinking it to, to, to feel, to, to not shake anymore, you know? And so I, I drank as much as I can. I just started to break down, man. Like everything in the past, you know, the, my entire life, I was just thinking about that day and it, the, the booze was just not working everything i was just trying to quiet it down drink more drink more and you know they talk about it sometimes in the rooms where you just like you you uh you you drink yourself sober and 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 that's kind of what i did that day i drank uh just an incredible amount of alcohol i don't know how how i could even handle it and uh nothing happened didn't get uh, the shake stopped yeah but that that was about it and uh I remember kind of just breaking down and, and I called, uh, I finally like had the balls to call, uh, that veteran suicide hotline. Uh, because I, I had, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't know who else, to, I didn't know what else to do. I knew I could have gone to a meeting, but I didn't, I was too scared. I didn't want to go drunk. Um, I knew I could call, there's some people, but I was like, I'm just going to call this guy who doesn't know me. You know, somebody who's probably there to just help, you know, so they, they didn't have to see me, you know, so I was like, all right, I'll call him. And so I called him. And I, honestly, I could not tell you, I couldn't tell you what he said to me. I couldn't tell you what he did. I wish I knew his name to this day because that guy saved my life. He, he basically, I, I remember he told me, uh, since, uh, you know, I'm all enrolled in the VA and everything. I remember he told me don't worry about getting into a program. He told me to go to the emergency room. Hmm. So I was like, okay. So, so I went, so, so what I did, cause I, I so then, oh, so then I got off the phone with him. I said, I'm not going to do anything to hurt myself. Don't worry. Like, thank you for your time. I'm, I'm going to do what you said. So then, then I knew I, I could, then I put the phone down and I sat there kind of thinking like, all right, are you going to do this? Are you going to do this? And I knew, I knew for a fact if I if if I called someone I know and told them exactly what was going on in my life that I might kind of back myself in the corner and actually have to get sober. So I so what I did is I called my dad. And uh I called my dad and I told him everything and I could hear in his voice, you know, he's like, "Oh shit, not this again, you know." I had to give him the, the bad news again that, you know, it all, it, it's all come back. It's all, you know, reached the point of no return. I have to do something. So basically I, I kind of like set like a roadblock for myself, you know, like, okay, now my dad knows. So I have to do this. I told him what the guy told me to do. He said, yes, do it. He said, pour out all your booze and go to the emergency room now. I was like, okay, I will. So I hung up the phone and I was like, well, I still have some booze left. 
So I was like, it was about eight o'clock at night at this point. So I was like, I'm going to drink the rest of the booze, fall asleep, and then go to the VA tomorrow morning. <laughs> and I knew in my head, I was like, I don't know if I'm going to make it to the VA in the morning, but you know what? I still got booze. I'm, a, I'm an alcoholic, man. I had to finish it, you know? Yeah, for sure. That's and what we so, do best, right? Is we yeah, do- yeah. We drink. Yeah. So, so I, I finished it and, uh, and I passed out. And then the next morning I woke up and something still had a hold of me, man. Something said in my head, you know, that just, just go, dude, don't drink. Don't do it today. Today's, today's the day. It's finally time. And I went, I went to the VA. I couldn't get there fast enough, man. I was shaking like a leaf. And, uh, and I got, and I went into the emergency room. I looked at the lady at the, that poor lady at the emergency room. I looked at her, I looked her in the face. I said, I'm an alcoholic. And if I stop drinking, I'm afraid something bad is going to happen to me. And her eyes got all big, you know, like, oh, okay, like, come on back. So, so they put me in, they put me in the hospital. They put, you know, banana bag IVs all on in me and stuff. And uh, to, to rehydrate me, I remember, you know, I remember uh, I had to like piss in a cup and, uh, and I'm, I'm, my piss looked like Coca-Cola. I was so dehydrated and uh, yeah, they did a bunch of blood tests on me. Um, The doctor came in and he told me, he said, uh, he, you know, he did that thing. So how much do you drink? You know, I've gotten that question a thousand times before. I always lied about it, but I, I just, for some reason in, in something inside of me, it was just like, just be honest with them. Just be honest. And, and I told him, I told him exactly how much I drank and what I was doing. And he's like, yeah, it shows. He, he told me if my, I was 29 at the time, he told me my age wasn't on the blood work. He would have thought I was a 60 year old alcoholic. God that's, damn. that's how bad my body was just starting to shut down. And so uh, from there, you know, the VA social workers started to come in and they got me into like a detox program uh, there at the VA. And as soon as I got to the VA, man, I mean, I had a car, so I just hopped in the, uh, you know, I was the first, the second day I was there, I just hopped in my car and started going back to meetings. And that's, you know, the rest is history, I guess. <laughs> that's awesome, dude. So, um, so what's your sobriety date? Uh, January 18th, 2017. Awesome. So, so you'll be, you'll be coming up on. 18 months here in a, in a couple weeks. Fuck yeah. Strong work, dude. Strong work. Um, so Brandon, let's, let's get into your, your project that you're working on, dude. Firecracker. Um, yeah. Tell us, tell us a little bit about that. What led up to that? And, um, let's talk about that shit. For sure. Well, I mean, without giving too much away about the film, you know, I still want people to see it, but, uh, it's, it's based off, it's based off what, what I used to be like and what I do now, basically. And, and it follows uh, a alcoholic suffering from PTSD uh, on his last day drinking. And uh, he doesn't know it's his last day, of course. Um, and, and so he, uh, it, it follows him and it also follows another guy um, and uh, another character. And that other character is um, is somebody who's been sober a while and who who is basically that's all he does is help other veterans. You know, he's the other guy on this. He's he's the guy on the other side of the phone answering those phone calls when people call that one eight hundred number. You know, that's what he does. 
and it's about them too and their day and that that day just happens to be the 4th of July. So that's that's kind of what the 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 story is about and you know me when I started writing this thing it was it you know cuz that's what I I I moved to LA for I wanted to get into the film industry I wanted to write I wanted to direct I wanted to do all that stuff but alcohol just just kept slowing me down slowing me down slowing me down. And I, and, and as soon as, as soon as I got sober, it was like, just things just started opening up in my life that I never thought were possible, you know? And that's only because I put my recovery first. I mean, don't get me wrong. I, 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 I have to do what's asked of me in, 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 in recovery before I could do any of this stuff. So, yeah. So anyway, so that's, so when I started writing the story, I was like, I have to, I have to tell people this because when I, when I was in Iraq, I lost, um, we lost two guys uh, to an IED explosion. The whole time we were there, we, we only lost two. I mean, compared to some other battalions and divisions, we were lucky, you know, only losing two. But since I've been back, I've lost six friends to suicide. God, um, and those are just the ones I could think of off the top of my head that I really knew well. I know there's a couple others uh, whom I didn't know very well, um, but in me personally, I know six of uh, guys I've met all through my military career. One, one guy from basic training didn't he? You know, he took his own life. A few other guys from my battalion, from my brigade, took took their own life. Like it just, it's that the the two to six ratio doesn't make sense to me that doesn't make sense how we can lose two guys overseas and six since coming home that war the war the the war takes lives but coming home it's it's a whole nother fight you know and i i just felt like and and every single one of them by the way every single one of them every single one had they were they were drinking or doing drugs because that's the only thing they knew how to use to quiet down that noise in their head you know so, so when I was writing this, I knew I had to tell my story because, uh, because I thought maybe it, it would, it would help some people. And, um, and that's, that's what I hope happens, you know? Yeah. So it's, you, you touch on a couple of big things there, dude, like what our sobriety brings to us. Um, I know for me, you know, I'm doing things today that I would have never, never imagined doing, you know, or, or when I was drinking and drugging, like I would have, I would have never done. Um, the podcast being a big one, dude, I think it's super important for us. Um, you know, I, I almost feel like we have the obligation to get the word out there and to share our story with others, man, to, to show that, you know, there is hope dude. And that there's, they're not the only ones going through this shit. Right. Um, and although it may be hard as fuck to reach out, man, is, is one thing that I've found, dude, if I, if, if I just reached out to one person, like I, <clears throat> I got like four or five calls, you know what I mean? And it's, it's yep. crazy. This, the, the, the recovery community, man, it's so, it's so loving and compassionate and, you know, that's, yeah. that's what, that's what my hope is, you know, is to tell the person out there that's still suffering, like, dude, you're not alone. You know, some of those thoughts that in your head, um, you know, there are millions and millions of people out there that are struggling it. And then there's even, even better news is that there's tens of millions that recover from it. Right. And I right. think that, that, I think that that's, 
that's the important thing is that there is a way out. You know, it's, it's hilarious, dude. Like my wife tells me to this day, dude, like you ain't fucking special, Seth. You know what I mean? Right. The shit that you've yeah. been through in your life, you're not the only one that's gone through that shit. Exactly. I, think, I think that's a very, very important message out there to the one that still struggles. Like, dude, you ain't fucking stressed. You ain't, you ain't special. You know, yeah. what I mean? all you got to do is reach out, you know, getting, getting back to, to what sobriety has brought, you know, myself. And, and I think even you, Brandon, like doing shit that you would have never even imagined. I mean, even just the little, the little stuff like, Today, this morning, I spent um, probably three, four hours out on the river in a kayak, bro, where I kayaked maybe four or five miles. I would have never done that shit in my addiction. You know what I mean? It's it's the little stuff. Talking to you right now, dude, like we would have never connected if it wasn't for... um, you know, our our past struggles and our and our current I hate to call them successes, but they kind of are. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that's kind of that's what um sobriety has brought to me and, and to you. Like we wouldn't be doing this shit if we weren't sober. Exactly. Yeah. I mean the the things that it only a year and a half I've been sober and the things that have happened in a year and a half are just unfa I would have never thought that I'd be making a movie and uh, that people would want to see it, uh, let alone make it in, in, in a year and a half is, is incredible to me. I mean, and like you said, you were on, you, you were on a kayak for just, I mean, yesterday I was with my girlfriend, and I was riding fucking Vespas around, dude, like <laughs> riding around the beach down in Manhattan Beach, just going like, I, I remember, I remember looking out, the sun, the sun was setting, I'm on a fucking Vespa, I mean, I, dude, I I never thought I'd be on a Vespa, let alone like anywhere like outside with like a, uh, you know, I just saw my girlfriend. I saw the the beach, the sunset. It was perfect. You know what I mean? And I could not have been happier with my life. You know, it's like those little things, man, that sobriety gives me. That's just, it's just, uh, um, it's hard. It's hard. It's, it's, it's hard to uh, put into words how, how grateful um, I am every day that, uh, how, how lucky I am that, uh, something spoke to me that day, you know, and got me to, got me to get back into the, into the recovery. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, I I think it's also important to say too, man, that, um, you know, although life is great in sobriety, I know for me, like that doesn't mean that I still have my, my struggles that I still struggle with shit. Like, tell me about it. I still have to, um, I have to deal with sickness, um, you know, in my family, I still deal with death, like life still happens, but what sobriety has brought into me is a way to deal and, and and a way to kind of cope with what life throws at us, man. I, I truly, it's my belief that, um, you know, we're kind of born into this world that is so fucked up. Right. And, I drank and drug because I had no idea on how to deal with that shit. I had no idea on how to deal with my feelings and I didn't want to fucking deal with my feelings. But for me today, like I get to, I get to deal with my feelings. I get to hurt. I get to laugh. I get to smile. I get to cry. And that is like the biggest thing in sobriety for me that I get to do that shit. Right. And, and be fucking okay with it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Life happens, man. I mean, like today, man, I mean, for your listeners, I, you know, they may not know I was an hour and a half late to this fucking thing, you know, 
<laughs> I, I, life happens, dude. I was stressing out. I was driving through LA traffic, like freaking out, looking at my watch, looking at like, oh my God, I'm going to be this, 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 this one chance I have to be a, on a podcast and I'm going to fuck it up. I'm, I'm a piece of shit, you know, like, oh my God, like it's over, you know? I still, I, I still go through that stuff, you know, and things, bad things happen to, to, to people all the time, dude. It's just life, you know? And I, I get to deal with that stuff. I get to figure out that it's going to be all right. You know, like I could get through this. I don't have to turn to a bottle every time um, things don't go my way, you know? Yeah, for sure. So what is your, what is your, reco- your recovery program look like today, Brandon? Dude, I mean, it looks like me. I get, you know, my daily routines. I get up, I pray, you know, that's what my sponsor told me to do. So I do it. Um, I call other alcoholics because that's what my sponsor told me to do. So I do it. I go to meetings probably five to seven days a week. Um, you know, I'm getting ready to go to one now here in a little while. Um, I have commitments at those meetings. I, 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 and I, and, and I, I try to, as soon as I get to a meeting, I try to find a newcomer that, that looks, um, lonely, you know, he doesn't like, like you said, man, like, like I, I, I have to find the guy that I see desperation on his face, you know, that, that's, that's really what keeps me going is finding new guys and finding, um, especially, I mean, you know, I'm a big proponent of the guys helping the guys, the women helping the women, you know, like I have to find a guy when I get there that, that looks like he needs help. And I also, you know, I reach out to the veterans who need help. You know, I'm connected with a lot of the uh, veterans in recovery. Um, and, and just try, just try my best to give back what was, you know, so freely given to me because without that, I got nothing, you know, yeah. I put, I put my recovery first above everything like I mentioned you know I have I have uh nice things now I have a car I have a girlfriend I have uh um you know a nice apartment I have all these things but if I don't put recovery first you know it's all gone all of it yeah for sure for sure I I I can't I can't say that better myself man I, I I truly uh attribute everything um you know, materialistic or not to, yeah. to my sobriety today what, um, as well. And, you know, knowing too, like if I don't continue to work on my sobriety on a daily, sometimes minute by minute fucking basis, like all that yeah. shit could be taken away from me. Yeah. Um, whatever, whatever I put in front of my recovery is the first fucking thing to go for sure. Yeah. Yep. You know, I, if I put my job in front of my recovery. That's gone first. If I put whatever, you know, girlfriend in front, it's gone, you know, like everything, even, even like you said, like not just material stuff, my emotional uh, state of mind is, is all thanks to, to my recovery. You know, I just have had a complete change in perception, you know, a new pair of glasses, I guess, as people, you know, as I think, you know what I'm talking about there. It's just like, I I see the world in, in a different lens today. And, and it's all thanks to, um, putting 110% into my recovery every day. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So Brandon, uh, we're going to wrap this thing up, man, to the, to the alcoholic or the addict that, uh, still struggles out there. Um, if you could tell them one thing, what would that be? 
or fuck, maybe even two things, three things. If you know what, what, what word of advice could you give to the, to the alcoholic or addict that still struggles out there? Dude, my, my biggest thing for me was when I, when I first came in, it, it doesn't matter what people think about you, man. That was the biggest part of me getting sober is, is, is like, I felt like I could handle this myself. I could do this. Like, you know, like I, I'm a man, I'm, I'm a, I'm a fucking paratrooper. I could handle this shit on my own, you know? And I just, I couldn't, you know, I, I, I needed to reach out, you know? And what it took for me was calling a phone number on a business card that, and, you know, and, and I still, I knew the guy couldn't see my face. I couldn't, I couldn't, uh, I, he, I didn't even tell him my name and I was afraid of what he'd think of me, you know, that, that just knowing, knowing that if, if you reach out, if you call somebody, if you, they're not going to think less of you, they're not going to. And that, that was a big thing for me because I was so worried about what people think my, my, my image or whatever. I, I don't know. Like, I just, I really wish people would reach out more, you know, because everyone, every time someone commits suicide or dies of a drug overdose or whatever, you know, people keep thinking about what could I, what could have I, what could I, what could I have done? What, you know, what, what could I have done better to help him or her? And it, the, the truth is you couldn't have done anything, man. It's, it's up to, it was up to me and it was up to me to reach out and really just uh, ask for that help. And when I got here, you know, I guess the second thing would be just honesty, full and unbridled honesty. I had to be honest with myself and others. I could not get sober if I was lying to people. Couldn't do it. If I was, if I was lying, I would have been, I'd be dead. You know, I've tried that before. I've tried to, I've tried to get in. Like, it goes back to that perception thing, man. I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm terrified of what people think about me, you know? And so I had to, I had to, I, I always had to lie to cover that up. And now, and you know what, since I got introduced a little honesty into my life, uh, here I am still sober. You know, that was the first thing I had to do. Everything else will come. So Brandon, if someone wants some in, more information on the project that you're working on or any of your past projects, where could they, where could they hit you up at or, or find out some more information about you? They could go to www.brandondemchak.com. Uh, that's B-R-A-N-D-O-N-D-E-M-C-H-A-K dot uh, com, and that's uh, the website I got set up. I could they could see some of my past projects. They could see uh, current projects. Seed and Spark campaign will be on uh, my website. They could go to that, and uh, if they feel like uh, you know, they want to try and, uh, get the word out there themselves. They could donate a few bucks or, uh, even if they could just share it on their social media, I mean, it would help us out a ton, uh, because, you know, I, I, I truly believe that this is an important story for not only veterans, but alcoholics. Um, I think, uh, the story needs to be told and I, and they could help. All right, Brandon, right on, man. Thanks for tuning in today. Brandon, it's been an honor. It's been great. Fucking super stoked on Firecracker. Uh, I will most definitely be following that. Uh, if you guys listening out there want to find Brandon, we will link his uh, website and funding campaign into the show notes. Much respect, love, and keep your blood clean.